Yes, hello folks, welcome to the Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Brand, joined with my regular co-host, the excellent Zach Louie, hot on the heels of what was arguably the best Europa League two-legged tie, uh, certainly up there, than, than what we've seen in a long, long time, if ever. Matches netted Barcelona, two European giants going head-to-head <clears throat> in what was just a truly wonderful game. The tie was alive until the very last second. Brilliant game of football. And as a United fan, I still trying to collect myself a bit after that. But uh, what was your what was your thoughts on Zach? Yeah, brilliant match uh, across the 180 minutes. I have to say, I think that the first leg was definitely a lot more uh, high intensity, high quality than the second. But um, I, one thing that I will say is I, I do think that Xavi will be ruining a lot of his decisions from the first leg, whether that's you know, starting Marco Solonzo, um, not starting Alejandro Balde, taking off Rafinha after he was after he got a goal and assist. Um, uh, you know, a lot of decisions that are made a week ago can come back to bite you uh, a week later. So, you know, I, I do think that Barcelona were very unlucky to be going into this match without three major players in Usman Dembele. Uh, Pedri and Gavi. Yeah. Um, I think that it was most certainly a tale of two halves today. Barcelona, you know, they. I think that United were were fairly comfortable at the start, um, and ironically, Bruno Fernandes, who I believe had United's two best chances early on, uh, causing a great save from Ter yeah. Stegen. You know, he he gave away a penalty, which I, I I thought it was definitely borderline. But it's one of those where if the referee sees it, he, he's going to give it. So, honestly, uh, inexcusable for a player like Bruno. Uh, he had he had a fairly hot and cold game, I would say. Um, you know, with, whether that's giving away the penalty and fouling Balde or uh, getting a yellow card after kicking it into Frankie de Jong. But with that being said, I mean, he is such an important player to United and and, you know, we saw that today with, with his involvement in, in the goals. Um, he's a player who, even if he's having some uh, rudimentary mistakes, Eric Ten Hag is still going to keep him in just because of how important he is. So, so I do think that, you know, United were able to uh, take advantage, take momentum in the second half. I thought that Barcelona were the better side in the first, yeah. uh, despite not really getting... That many clear-cut chances after the Lewandowski penalty. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the second-half substitution of uh, Antony for Weghorst definitely, I think, played in their favor. Antony, of course, scoring the phenomenal uh, match-winning yeah. goal for Manchester United. And in general, you know, United were able to to take control. I, I think that, um, you know, ultimately... Barcelona were unable to keep themselves uh, in the tie and really panicked. Um, so I think that it, this was an incredibly even tie between two of the biggest clubs in world football, but not just the biggest in terms of brand name, but also uh, two of the best teams in world football right now. You know, you've got a Manchester United team that is firmly in the title race in, mm-hmm. in England, and you've got a Barcelona team that... Uh, that is running away with the league title. So, I, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what happens by your side. Uh, United will be moving on to the next round of Europe. They're going to be taking on Newcastle in the cup final. We'll be tr- trying to get some uh, major silverware. 
Barcelona, on the other hand, yeah, another very disappointing season for them in Europe. Uh, and if it wasn't for the fact that uh, they have the best defense in Europe right now and, and they are running away with the league title, uh, you know, it, it would obviously be a disappointing campaign. So um, I think that there are definitely some positives to take from from uh, this performance as, as far as Barcelona goes. I, I thought that Alejandro Balde was very impressive. Uh, yeah. He's really solidified really that left-back position and, you know, has just been such a bright spark. I think he can definitely lock down the starting spot for uh, Spain over the, the next few years. Um, but, yeah, ultimately, I think that you have to give credit to United. They pulled through. Uh, and what a turnaround it has been over the past few months, uh, just night and day. I think there's enormous similarities between these two clubs in the sense that um, if you go back to both their previous managers, Kuman, <clears throat> of course, you go back to United under Ranić. If you'd have offered both of these sets of fans to be in this situation immediately after that, uh, where Xavi would have Barcelona back at the top of the Spanish league, um, where, okay, they, they, the Europa League is neither United's most important tournament nor is it Barcelona's. And if United had went out in the way Barcelona did, I probably wouldn't be devastated. I would take a lot of heart, heart from the way they played against a team where really they were both very evenly matched. Two great teams that played true to their history. And both of these managers, Xavi and Eric Ten Hag, have commit, uh, basically performed an exorcism in both these football clubs under difficult circumstances. Um, Barcelona's main target, of course, will be would have been the Champions League to stay in the Champions League because now their, their spending cap has been reduced, but would be um, to win the La Liga. Before we move before we move up, Barcelona, United, I want to ask you a little bit about um, your opinion on this referee situation and that they are involved in with a bit of a controversy and what you think could potentially happen there. But all, all things being equal, well, two fantastic teams playing true to their history. And uh, why do you think for Xavi it's been totally different domestically than what it has been in, in Europe? Yeah, you know, it's it's obviously a very uh, sore subject with Xavi. He uh, came into Barcelona midway through uh, a very poor start to the season under Ronald Koeman. Uh, ultimately, were unable to beat out Benfica and uh, finished third. And, uh, of course, were eliminated there uh, by, by Eintracht Frankfurt in Europa. Uh, second year coming, you know, you had definitely a lot of high expectations. You know, a lot of pressure following that. Uh, insane uh, summer transfer spree, but ultimately, uh, I think that sometimes in the Champions League, a lot of times actually, luck plays uh, plays a massive role. And we saw against Inter, uh, they were missing three key defenders in uh, Ronald Araujo, um, Jules Kunde, and Andreas Christensen. Three players who've been massive. You know, were forced to play uh, likes of. Eric Garcia and Gerard Piquet, and that game was was certainly massive. I, I do think that uh, had had they had those players, it would have been uh, a much different story. But and and they definitely have a stronger squad on paper, at least, than Inter Milan. So it, it's been a, a very disappointing recent, um, you know, past few past few uh, campaigns for Barcelona. I do think that sometimes in Europe. These exorcisms, as you call it, can take longer, especially if you're, you know, taking a look at a team like Barcelona, who, 
you know, they are now going to be nine years without European silverware. You know, next year it will be nine years since that treble win under Luis Enrique. Since then, they've had some, you know, massive collapses against likes of Roma and Liverpool, uh, the humiliating defeat to Bayern Munich. A lot of times it just takes uh, longer to uh, to kind of get this team out of a funk. And it's clear that they are that 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 they are uh, in need of a wake up call in Europe. But overall, still been an incredibly positive season for the Blaugranas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, if you'd have offered this to Boston at the start of the season, you'd be sitting top of the Liga. You, they would have taken it. Um, uh, before we move off, so, uh, before this conversation, I want to talk about quickly Eric Ten Hag because look at your opinion on Eric Ten Hag because to me, um, there what he's done at Manchester United was not obvious that this was going mm-hmm. to happen. Um, most people felt United were some way off competing for titles, competing for the league. Um, I know they're not top of the league, but they're in a title race without a doubt. They're three points off Manchester City. And it's not just the results. It's the it's the way he's completely lifted the football club. He's breathed life into a corpse, as I've said before. He has developed a team spirit. There's other things that he's done exceptionally well, and that's keep people like Marcus Rashford and Rafael Varane, who are notoriously injury-prone fit, um, which is very difficult to do. He's proved when Lissandra Martinez is a, is a masterstroke with, with what a, what a, what an unbelievable centre back that guy is, um, and you know they still got Eriksson to come back, which he's an important player. I think Sabitzer has been a really really good signing for them. What do you like most about Eric Ten Hag? Yeah, I mean Eric Ten Hag has done a phenomenal turn turnaround with this Manchester United team. You know, it had a very tough start uh, with some disappointing results, but you know quickly steadied the ship. And uh, has really stuck by his guns, which is something that you have to, you know, you have to have a lot of conviction if you're going to be a new manager coming to the league and having, you know, play and having people saying, oh, it's Eric 10 months, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, drawing a lot of skepticism. So I, I think that you have to give him a ton of credit for the work that he's done in terms of individual uh, man management whether that's getting Marcus Rashford back to his best after a disappointing season. Um, you know, I think there's no doubt that this is the best form of his career, Marcus Rashford, as well as other players who, you know, may not be having the greatest season, but it, it does show a sense of the the softer touch uh, of management, whether that's, you know, his how he has handled uh, Jaden Sancho's mental health issues, you mm-hmm. know, allowing him to go to the mountains and recover um, as well as other examples such as uh, Alejandro Garnacho, you know, de- dealing with a player with a ton of hype and really making sure that he he earns his place in the team. Uh, you know, so I think that those are three, those are some different examples of, of players, you know, talking about a player, a young player on the fringes of first team match action who's really become a key player, uh, even coming off the bench in Garnacho. Players who you know, arrive in England with a lot of uh, a lot of skepticism, such as Anthony, such as Lisandro Martinez. You know, what a phenomenal signing Lisandro has been. Oh, all of the question marks regarding his height, his ability in the air, they have pretty much all disappeared. Fantastic performance today, alongside Rafael Varane. And I do think that as well, it's 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 a great sign of 
uh, frankly, you know, his, his recruitment. I don't know if yeah. you can put that all on him, but uh, most certainly, you know, he, he has done a very good job in getting quality players in players that fit his profile. And, uh, you know, overall, I think being fair and just getting, you know, making sure that, that uh, no player feels totally safe in a starting spot. Yeah. Um, getting some competition in and, and making sure that players like Fred, for example, they know that they, they have a route back into the first team no matter what. And I think it's, it's because of that great man- management that you have a lot of players like Fred who can go from, uh, you know, not playing uh, in, for, for not playing regularly for a while to, you know, stepping in against Barcelona and just having one of the best performances of your career. Uh, I, I think that you have to give him a ton of credit um, in so much of what he has done. He has operated with uh, conviction and fairness. And yeah, for me, he has been un- Manchester United's best signing. Not Anthony, not Lisandro Martinez, not Rafael Veron, uh, not Casemiro. Although all of them have been very important for this turnaround, it's Eric Ten Hag. Yeah, I completely agree because none of the rest happened without Ten Hag. Um, let's switch our attention to <clears throat> Champions League uh, because um, we had four games Champions League. We had RB Leipzig 1-1 with Man City, Inter Porto, we had Eintracht Frankfurt, Napoli and Liverpool Real Madrid. I'll start with the Liverpool Real Madrid game. Um, Liverpool started really well in this game. Uh, Darwin Nunez scored a good goal. And to be fair to Darwin Nunez, uh, he started to score a few goals in the last few weeks where... He's starting to settle in a little bit. There were certain question marks about his ability, certain question marks about his mentality. Uh, of course, we know he shut down his social media account this first year at Benfica, which wasn't great, but he's looked decent in the last few weeks. We've a really good goal against Newcastle, a lovely goal against Real Madrid. And then both goalkeepers make inexplicable errors. Um, maybe Courtois was worse than Allison's. two of the top goalkeepers in the world, but Real Madrid, <clears throat> Zach, put on a masterclass to me once again showing the chasm between Liverpool and Real Madrid. I mean, Real Madrid's record against Liverpool in recent years is truly ridiculous. To be fair, they're one of the best teams in the world. They're hard to beat. Um, What impressed you the most about Real Madrid? With regards to uh, Real Madrid's performance, I mean, I have to say I'm not surprised. If there's one club that's capable of pulling this off, it was Real Madrid. Uh, You know, you look at the opening 20 minutes... And uh, it was really one-way action. And I think really almost like a blast from the past. I felt like I was watching Liverpool in 2019, uh, where they were really aggressive and organized with their press and also deadly on the counterattack. So, you know, I I do think that you have to give Darwin a ton of credit. Uh, That was a phenomenal finish to uh, set off the action. And overall, really composed going forward, really. Uh, strong start from Liverpool. With that being said, Real Madrid are a team that, uh, you know, if if they had a a English motto, it would be "Bend, don't break." They're a team that, no matter what, is never going to give up. And I think that uh, their their recent track record, of course, in in the past season, coming back against Paris Saint Germain uh, when yeah. they were completely outplayed. For 135 minutes, um, a, you know, so many other examples such as the Chelsea match, so many others from the years. And all of that is going to definitely play a role 
uh, in the opponent's minds and, you know, definitely uh, stem some, some doubt in, in their, uh, in their minds. So, because you are going up against a team that is footballing royalty. There is no, uh, there is no team in any international competition that really, it almost seems like they have their name on the trophy where you can never count them out until the final whistle. And that is Real Madrid. So I think that a lot of uh, different uh, points to analyze, but one player who I, I definitely think really encapsulated the turnaround uh, was um, Eduardo Camavinga. I felt that he had yeah. a very shaky start uh, playing in a holding role, was kind of loose with some of his touches, lost possession quite easily, but uh, really held his own. Credit to Carlo Ancelotti for not taking him off. There have been some times where he has had a poor uh, game and, uh, you know, he's been taken off at halftime, but he was allowed to respond and grow into the match. Um, I felt that, you know, despite the fact that defensive midfielder may not be his best position, he was able to, uh, you know, uh, put in a very composed performance. And Liverpool, of course, approaching this tie without two key players uh, in Aurelien Chouameni and Toni Cruz. Cruz coming off the bench. Uh, Kamavinga, though, very important in, I think, uh, allowing Real Madrid to win the midfield battle. We saw some fantastic passes out from the back, as well as some brilliant last-ditch tackles, just stepping in, uh, putting a foot in, and, and winning the ball back on the edge of the box. Um, so I, I, wanted, I wanted to touch upon Kamavinga. Another player... Uh, Nacho Fernandez, another player who has not necessarily been a regular, but has always gotten, uh, has always been a dependable figure, uh, somebody who can play across the back line and really composed. And, you know, despite the fact that he's always been a third, fourth choice center back, uh, never really shows that much in terms of rust. Um, so I thought that his substitution uh, for David Alaba was very important in limiting uh, Liverpool's success on the right wing, preventing Mohamed Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold from you know, getting involved that much in the game. Uh, so yeah, overall, it was a fantastic performance that saw players like players such as Luka Modric and Karim Benzema, who have not necessarily been at their best uh, this season, really showcasing why they are world-class on their day. Vinicius Jr. putting in a tremendous performance. So overall, you know, this when Real Madrid play like this, they are the best team in the world. They may not win La Liga this year, but there is nobody who can compete with them in terms of holding their nerve and coming back from these massive deficits. I thought Klopp said something that was really interesting about them. Um, <clears throat> this was before the game. He said, you know, and, and I think it was embodied in the way they, in the last season when they came back in those games, like you said, against Liverpool, PSG and what City, um, against PSG and City, sorry, uh, that it takes an awful lot for them to lose confidence, how hard it is for them to lose confidence in games. You look at the fact they're really well balanced between youth and experience. Uh, Modric was once again defies the age, absolutely sensational. Benzema, you know, brilliant finish uh Vinicius Jr just a piece of magic to for you know two goals um and despite the fact that this kid takes despicable abuse in the press conference prior to the game Jurgen Klopp was asked the most primal, primitive question I can I can think of it is so despicable where he was asked 
you think basically asked if Vinicius Junior brings it on himself because you know the racial abuse, you know because he's pr provocative, which quite frankly is is absolutely staggering to me that anyone could come up with a question like that. Um, you know he this kid is magnificent, absolutely sensational young player, uh, and <clears throat> I look at that Real Madrid team, Valverde, the balance, the technique, the way they were able to deal with the Chiumeni, um absence. And then you think Carlo Ancelotti. How was Carlo Ancelotti at Everton? <laughs> I still uh, find that hard to believe. Um, no disrespect to Everton at all. Brilliant football club, massive football club. But we may be talking about when it's all said and done. And usually this is done. Usually this is done when we look backwards. When we evaluate how gr the greatness. It's usually done in the rearview mirror. We may be looking back at Carlo Ancelotti being one of the most successful managers in the history of football. 100%, Phil. I mean, he has won, I believe, what, five Champions Leagues it's already? Ridiculous. What? Sorry, what? Yeah, it's ridiculous what he's done. He's won and then think about the one he lost in, in Istanbul, where they were 3-0 up. I mean, you could be easily sitting on six with AC Milan. I mean, it's just unbelievable what he's done. Yeah, and this is someone who has always been criticized for not being... Uh, great, uh, a great coach in the league, and yet has won league titles in Germany, France, mm -hmm. England, Spain, and Italy. I believe. I, I'm pretty sure he's uh, the only coach yeah. to have done that. But you know, I I think that I saw a question the other day. You know, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of current coaches? I think, without a doubt, Carlo Ancelotti. You know, he has. Uh, delivered a legendary uh, legacy for for all of the almost all of the clubs uh, that he has worked with. You know, with the exception of likes of Napoli and and Everton, he's somebody who has definitely just inspired success and has really just been uh, such a great man manager. And I think that that's really allowed him to adapt uh, and and become you know such a great manager even in his old age at what 65 66 mm -hmm. um you know and I, I remember uh Irving Irving Lozano telling a story of after he joined Napoli and uh uh basically saying Ancelotti just helping his family get acquainted organizing a barbecue and really just yeah I read his, that uh, story is unbelievable yeah I think I've actually heard sorry to interrupt Jack I've actually heard that a lot about Ancelotti from his ex-players about how much they love him as a human being yeah 100 i mean he just seems some he's somebody who really personifies class ancelotti and i do think that that cool and composed composed demeanor you know you, you don't necessarily seeing him you don't necessarily see him uh shouting in the touchline and really complaining about calls too much and uh of course we all remember that massive champions league tie uh, I believe it was against Liverpool or Chelsea where, you know, he was consulting with some of the veteran players of his squad. You know, what should I do? How should I approach this tactical problem? And I think what that does, it, it makes the players realize that, you know, their, their voices are appreciated, that he is listening to these players, that, you know, despite the fact that he's won everything there is to win, he's, he's going to take advice and, and, uh, and hear out players who you know, are, are playing for him. So what that does is I think it really inspires uh, calm. It inspires players to 
to just hold their nerve and realize that, you know, they, they are playing for something that is incredibly important, but at the same time, it is just a game and, uh, you know, you, you need to hold, you need to hold your nerve in order to play the best. You know, that's something that I think a lot of people, uh, they, they perhaps misconstrue. They perhaps don't understand the fact that, uh, you know, as much as we love to see our players getting fired up and screaming, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, you know, trying to use passion. The fact is, you play better when you are cool and composed, when you are not uh, using up so much energy on, you know, complaining about a foul that wasn't given or a tackle, you know. When you are just focused on the objective at hand, you can do so much. And at the end of the day, we saw just how much Real Madrid's mental strength and their composure, uh, how, how important that yeah. was in winning the battle against uh, Liverpool. Look, they have a, a, as you know, I'm a big boxing fan and the Mexicans have a saying in boxing, fight mad, you lose, right? And uh, I remember even Eric Ten Hag saying this after the Leeds game where it was really important to keep your composure. One of the oldest tactics in the book when you're playing against a better team is to make the game ugly, is to get them off their game, to get them mad when you're when you're upset. <clears throat> you, you lose composure, you, you, your game drops to their level. And so it is something that that emotional maturity is very, very hard. It's something that's hard to coach. But, um, you know, I remember a story Mourinho told about Mario Balotelli. I'm not sure if you heard the story, but Inter were drawn no no at halftime. And they were bringing Balotelli on. And he didn't do in this game. And he says, you know, or they were winning one no. He goes, Mario, just don't do anything stupid. Just go on, play the player game, you know, just hold the ball up, you know, we'll win this game easily. And he goes five minutes later, he's sent off, you know. And so, you know, Balotelli's magnificent talent, as we know, but uh, <laughs> maybe not the most controlled guy in the world. So, yeah, quite, quite right. I want to also turn your attentions to Liverpool's uh, central defence because Joe Gomez had a nightmare, but far more striking for me, and I understand sometimes this is a result of who you're playing beside, was Virgil van Dijk. Because Virgil van Dijk's form all season has been abysmal. Um, He has fallen off a cliff from being one of the best defenders in the world to being someone that looks a liability at the back. 100% Phil. I mean, I think that not just one of the best, probably the best centre-back in football for a you know a year or two really since his arrival in terms of shoring up that Liverpool back line absolutely massive um, and I think that obviously it looks like he has not been the same since that lengthy injury and you know and I think that uh, really one of my issues with Van Dijk since his return and and you know an issue that we saw as well in the World Cup he just seems to stand off too much and yeah, really, he does. Uh, you know, just uh, just be a little too soft. Don't get me wrong. That is, uh, in principle, there there are definitely some times where that will work in his favor. You know, standing off, allowing uh, your fellow defenders to recover and, you know, making the right tackle, for sure, that is good defending. But I almost feel like Van Dijk, he's, you know, he, he has uh, heard that, Paolo Maldini quotes, if I have to make a tackle, I have already made a mistake mm. and kind of taken it to art and think that, you know, just, you know, t- making tackles, that is that is something that only 
poor defenders do. I'm too good for it. You know, I just sometimes you want your uh, defenders to get a little down and dirty and and uh, put in a, a tough tackle. And ultimately, yeah, he just has looked a. a to, to be a, quite honest, a shadow of the Van Dyke we saw uh, at, in the first few years at, at Liverpool. Um, so 100% he was not the biggest issue at Liverpool. I think that Joe Gomez put in an absolute nightmare of a performance. And I have to say, um, you know, I, I think that Jurgen Klopp made a massive uh, mistake by not, uh, by not starting um, Joel Matip. Yeah, that being said, I think that uh, if Ibrahima Konate is starting in central defense, I think this could very well be a different ball game. But uh, you know, with that being said, this is this is a team defeat. You know, I, I don't want to necessarily scapegoat Gomez, even though he was he was awful, and I do think that Liverpool should be trying to move on for him, move on from him in the summer. Uh, the fact is, uh, you look at the midfield. They really weren't capable of, of handling the pressure. And that's been their biggest issue all season. Um, Stefan Bajkatic, you know, looking a little outclassed, obviously only 18 years well, old. Well, he's a kid. Yeah, of yeah. course. He, and and I, I do think that you also have to make sure that you're, you're talking about the experienced ones. That's why I think, you know, someone like Diago, who is clearly Liverpool's best midfielder, he should be expected to make, take you know more of the slack. I know that he wasn't uh, playing against Real Madrid, but talking about experienced leaders like him, Fabinho and Henderson, you need to step up. You you know you need to lead by example. Um, you know you, you mentioned Van Dijk and his individual decline. You know I completely agree with that. But another player who has really gone off the, a cliff is Fabinho. Uh, you know from one of the best defensive midfielders mm-hmm. in the world to you know, right now, I'll be completely honest, he doesn't crack my top five defensive midfielders in Europe. Uh, he's been, you know, look, he's looked really a shadow of himself constantly late to uh, 50-50s and ground duels, really losing his man. And we saw him get exposed on the counter for Liber- for Real Madrid's fifth goal. Uh, yeah, he, he has a lot of questions that, you know, need to be answered. Um, if, if I was Liverpool, I, I think that, I'd be looking at getting in at least two midfielders this summer, no matter what happens over the next few months. Because at the end of the day, uh, as as positive as Liverpool were in the twenty in the opening twenty minutes or so, uh, when you have a midfield of Bajkatic, Fabinho, and Henderson, eventually your legs are going to give out. You know, you're not going to be able to maintain that intensity, and you're going to see two drastically different games. In, in one, you know, it, it seemed like, um, you know, it didn't seem like 90 minutes. It seemed like nine hours, just two completely different uh, games in, in one. So, yeah, credit to Real Madrid for uh, holding their own. And I have to say, I think this tie is pretty much done and done. Oh, definitely done. But here's the things you, you bring up a couple of things that, are, <clears throat> that would concern me. Because you quite rightly point out it's a team defeat. And you're talking about Fabinho being off the pace. I mean... Andy Robertson hasn't looked anything like the player that he was uh, when Liverpool were flying. Klopp bought, spent £100 million, circa £100 million on Nunez and Kakbo, two forwards, when really they needed midfielders. They're very soft down the middle. I understand Jota was injured. I understand um, 
they've had injuries up up top as well uh, that that uh, that have hurt them. And Jota is obviously a very very good player for them. Um, I get that. Uh, and um, Luis, Luis Diaz, of course, is a big big loss for them too. They're two very very important players, so I understand why. But when I'm looking at Liverpool's midfield, I'm looking at Henderson and Fabinho. Now, Real Madrid have won the experienced midfielder in their Modric. They bought Camavinga. They bought Chouamani. They Federico Valverde. Young midfielders with legs. They sold Casemiro. I'm looking at that Liverpool midfield and I'm going, how are you sitting there with Henderson, Fabinho, and Basatich, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? Um, you know, excellent young midfielder. Not really fair to expect him to... You know, to dominate in a game like this, or, or I mean, that's this is a learning game for someone like him. And going, you bring it on James Milner, you bring it on Matip, Elliot. You know, why did Klopp allow this to happen? Because I see unbelievable similarities with what Klopp is doing right now and what happened at Dortmund's last season. And I'll tell you something. It's the first time I've looked at Jurgen Klopp, where I felt. He looks completely lost on how to fix this. Yeah. And look, I think that there are definitely some similarities between his final season at Dortmund and, and now. Is it um, the way he plays, Echo? I mean, is it because it seems to me you would need to refresh the squad quite a bit, not just for obviously legs, but because I think once you start losing momentum, you need to bring in fresh faces that play for you in the same way those, those players play for him. In a season after his second season or third season, where everyone was committed, I mean, I watched Liverpool. Sorry to bring this back to United, but I couldn't believe how much they stood off them. And what you're saying about Van Dijk not pressing Liverpool play a high press game, that heavy metal football. Why are they no longer doing that? Yeah, look, I I think that the problem is multiple. Okay, I think that on the one hand, uh. I, th- I think that Liverpool, the, the style that they have adopted under Jurgen Klopp, this gegenpressing style, yeah, it is something that takes its toll on you physically. Um, I think that uh, ultimately you need to, you need fairly young players, not, not young players, but players who are in the prime of their career, such as Jorginho Vijnaldum a few years ago, such as Jordan Henderson a few years ago. Ultimately, father time is going to catch up with you if you play with such a physically demanding style. Um, and I also think that, you know, another issue is you, you need to have a lack of sentimentality. And I think that, that that's something that's so important in football. And that has perhaps been one of Klopp's uh, Achilles heels as a manager, holding on to the same veteran players for far too long and, you know, not giving them competition expecting players like uh, Jordan Henderson, like James Milner, like Fabinho to, you know, still be the same and, and step up. I think that ultimately that is, is a very important, um, that's something that has been a very important factor in Liverpool's decline. I think you, you compare that to Real Madrid, you know, they have, they have done a very good job of moving on from players. I think that perhaps one of the only exceptions has been Gareth Bale in terms of not knowing when to cash in on him. Um, but you look at so many other players, you know, moving on from Casemiro and getting Aurelien Troimeni, moving on from mm-hmm. Sergio Ramos and bringing in the likes of David Alaba, Eder Militao, and Antonio Rudiger. 
they are a club that that have constantly demanded excellence. And uh, I, I do think that ultimately when you settle for second best, when you settle for uh, players who are, are showing some signs of decline, that is something that is, yeah, it could come back to bite you. Um, I, I will say uh, as well, I think that uh, Liverpool competing for four competitions, competing for a quadruple, and yet to come out with, I think, what, one, two domestic cups, you know, failing to win the Champions League, failing to win the league, that is something that is going to weigh on you a lot as a player. To think that you are so close to having one of the greatest seasons of all time and yet having that slip from your fingers, yeah, that, that is definitely something that is going to, it's, it's going to uh, play a role mentally. And, and uh, we've seen a lot of teams, you know, do that kind of reach uh, incredible apexes, such as, for example, tot- the Tottenham side that uh, reached the Champions League final um, and, and come crumbling down, you know. And so ultimately, I think that the problem is, is multifold. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I think Klopp has the job of his life to try to fix that. I will quickly move on because we uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about this. Let me talk to you about Manchester City because City draw one each way to Leipzig. I think there was some something to be said for what Guardiola said afterwards where, you know, there's an expectation that City are going to go and steamroller teams, which I think is a bit disrespectful to the opposition. But there does seem to be a vulnerability about City that hasn't been present in a while, where it seems to be they're quite not the best defensively. There's obviously the ongoing discussion, you know, Holland gets you more goals, but is, does that make you a better team? Um, and I'm looking at Manchester City and I feel, in, pre- excuse me, in previous years, I felt they're close to winning the Champions League. I don't get that sense this year, Zach. Yeah, um, I must say I was watching Inter Porto yesterday, mm. not... This game, I did see the highlights. I know that City got an early goal and um, uh, Leipzig uh, equalized. I think via Josko Vargil, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it was a header, and it's an it was a decent ball in the box. Uh, maybe he claimed a little bit on Diaz, um, <clears throat> but again, you know, Mario scores a good goal for City. Holland was essentially he had a poor game, and. So Guardiola plays that three at the back, two in midfield. Rodri was poor, plays that four basically across the top. Grealish, Gundogan, uh, Mares, Kyle Walker high, uh, and Holland, Ake, Diaz, Akanji. I look at Ake, Diaz and Akanji, that doesn't frighten me as a Manchester City defence. That's not a Manchester City defence that I've seen in the past where... you know they've been so hard to break down, where they're very, very good... You know, Addison, good goalkeeper, not great in my opinion. Um, Kyle Walker, high on the right, I don't love. Uh, and I thought if you looked at the game, you know, it was probably a fair result. City had more the, more more possession, but you're going, I expect they'll get through, but they're not going to put the frighteners up anyone. With that, with with how they're playing right now, and and you see it in the Premier League. There's a vulnerability about City, and maybe just maybe they're losing that invincible aura a bit. You know, um, obviously Oscar Guardiola once again showing why he's so highly rated and why this may be his last season at Leipzig. Exceptional young defender, left-footed centre back can play left back as well. Um, but 
do they the city give you the vibe that um this is a team that is you know that that is is going to be one of the hardest to beat and and one of the favorites for the champions like i don't think so yeah most certainly not i think that there's just something that that smells wrong about this city team i can't really put my finger on it but i do think that it is you know it is interesting that they have you know added erling holland um and yet there have been so many despite his uh despite being the top scorer in europe there have been really so many games where they can't buy a goal they will go up uh you know within the 20th minute and they just can't seem to get that vital second goal and uh they end up coughing it up because of you know in large part uh that inability to find the goal but also um as you mentioned a defense that has not necessarily inspired the same security as as ones in in years past um i think that uh, it was the same thing with Nottingham Forest at the weekend, you know, getting up, getting an early opener and then uh, conceding late on. Um, so, you know, they are a team who uh, they don't usually stay in poor runs of form for a while. You know, they, they will lose a game and yet, you know, bounce back with a 4 nothing win. Um, and yet it just seems like these these concerning results, be that the 1-1 draw to Forest or the 1-1 draw to Leipzig, you know, they're becoming far too regular. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know, you know, if, if Pep needs to find a, a better balance in the team or, or what exactly, um, but I do think that, yeah, it just seems like City's form has really uh, slowed down. They are still in, they are still, you know, in the fight for the Champions League and the league title. Um, you know, there's still the chance to turn this into a fantastic year, but with the quality at his uh, disposal, you definitely expect uh, Pep Guardiola to do better. I have to say, one player who I've been very uh, puzzled by in terms of his his management um, this season, Phil Foden. He's you know been yeah, very important really. for City. Uh, City's you know fantastic past few seasons, and yet has really been a, unable to uh, get a game. I can't remember the last time he started for for them. Um, so his minutes have dried up. And I think that's that's really concerning because he is a player who, you know, unlike, for example, uh, Riyad Mahrez or, Phil Fo- uh, or, um, or Jack Grealish, um, is definitely, you know, far away from reaching his prime. Yeah, it's a really, really odd thing. You know, when you look at Guardiola, Undoubtedly, one of the greatest men in football. He takes over Bayern Munich from Jupp Henkes, and Henkes had just won the treble. Guardiola fails to win the Champions League at Bayern. He then goes to City, and they went to City 2016-17 season. And maybe City looked further away from winning the Champions League than at any other time during his tenure. Why? It's an interesting question. I don't. I do think that it is a bit of an exaggeration to say that they are farther away. I mean, let's not forget. You don't they think so, uh, Zach? I mean, if you look at them against Spurs when no, they went out in the semi-final, they, they were they they were they were one of a, maybe the year Monaco beat them. The, yeah. It was commensurate to this, but may, I I I still don't I, think City are, are are you know what? If I looked at Real Madrid last night, I don't see City on that level. No, I, I completely agree. And I do think that it's very frustrating because it's one of those issues where, you know, as opposed to Liverpool, I think that Liverpool, it's clear. I, I don't think that 
a a new midfield would solve all of their problems. I think it would solve a great deal of them. With Manchester City, uh, it's just it's one of those where you really can't put your finger on it. You know, I think that perhaps part of it is they've gone from a, being a team that you know has has relied on passing and you know creative movement and uh, you know and and um, dribbling and playing like a team in general to to get goals to you know. Uh, relying largely on Erling Haaland. And I think that is mm-hmm. definitely something that, you know, we, we've talked about before, the Ewing theory, uh, relying on one player. It's, it's, never, it's never healthy. So I, I do think that is potentially one, one reason, as well as just it, it also seems like there is a lack of stability in the lineup. Uh, Arsenal, you know, you can, you can pretty much... Uh, the, the team writes itself. You know, we know what Mikel Arteta is going to pick pretty much most of the time. I know that uh, he benched Ben White uh, for Tomiyasu against Manchester City. But for the most part, you know, you know what is going to happen. We can't really say that with, with City. And in general, when you constantly are chopping and changing, you know, that that's something that is going to affect your team's ability to uh, find a rhythm. I want to ask you about the Inter-Porto game because uh, Romelu Lukaku gets a much-needed goal uh, for Simone and Zaghi team. You watched this game. Uh, give me your thoughts on it. Yeah, um, I watched I watched Inter-Porto and I, I think that it was a very balanced match. Uh, disappointing for Inter because I felt like they had done enough to get a draw. Um, we saw, you know, the first half, I think, fairly cagey. Uh, two teams that are that were kind of sitting off somewhat, uh, relying on you know, re- relying on just kind of uh, cagey passes, and neither willing to uh, give up their 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 uh, cards, as they say in poker, right? Um, but I think that you know Diogo Costa was also forced into making a few very good saves. I think had a, had a great performance in goal as well as some top distribution. Um, so. Really, I, I was very impressed with Costa, I must say. I think that a lot of people uh, were far too harsh on him in the World Cup and kind of admitting that they do not watch Porto on a regular basis because he is a phenomenal goalkeeper. He's a young keeper, you know. I mean, you to, yeah, he's a young keeper. He's 24 years old. I believe he yeah. just turned 24, maybe 23. Um, but he's, he's a player who's only going to get better. Very much a modern keeper. I think that Manchester United would do very well to sign him in the summer uh, because, yeah, he's just, you know, had some phenomenal reaction saves. And, um, and yeah, so I, I do think that uh, overall it was, it was a very balanced matchup. But ultimately, uh, ultimately one player cost uh, Porto, and, and that, was, um, that was Otavio. You know, in, Otavio is, in my opinion, Porto's most important player. Um, and Sent off. I think... You know, he he got sent off. I think the first one, I the first yellow card was pretty hard to describe. It, it was uh, basically I think Inter had um, had kicked the ball out of play for an injured player. Um, Otavio took a throw in and caused a scuffle, got booked for that. And then in the I think 77, 77th minute, um, had a rash tackle, got sent off. And uh, yeah, there have been plenty of times where Porto have really shot themselves in the foot by an expulsion. And, and from that point on, 
I think that Porto, Inter were certainly able to take control of the match and, and it was one-way traffic. Uh, I, I will say Romelu Lukaku, you know, has had, he's had a very poor season by his standards, mm-hmm. hasn't played that much and uh, has had scored just three goals prior to the, today. I think one of them being a penalty, but I felt he did very well after coming on uh, for Edin Dzeko, really offering a lot of, um, uh, you know, not just not just what he, not just physical prowess and and pace, but also holding the ball up very well uh, and creating some good chances. Got a very well deserved goal uh, for his performance, and yeah, that that substitution was definitely very important for uh, for Inter taking control and and being able to pounce. Another player, I must say, I think that I I I think that. Porto, they were dealing with a few um, a few key absences. Steven Ustakio, no Steven Ustakio in midfield, yeah. um, as well as I think um, Evan Nielsen was on the, bench, on the bench, still yeah. recovering from injury, but came on. And uh, overall, you know, Inter they they have been one of the best defensive sides in Europe. Uh, Porto have been one of the best defensive sides in Europe since the start of the year. So it was, I wasn't too surprised the fact that they were able to limit uh, their limit Inter's chances. I knew that this was going to be a low-scoring game going into the match, but uh, ultimately Otavio's expulsion really uh, cost them, and he's going to miss the second leg, and that's going to be very hard for Sergio Conceição to deal with. But they've been in tougher situations before. They're in great form. And uh, I think that they definitely have what it takes to turn this around at the Dragao. Um, but I just yeah. wanted to mention a few more players from Inter who really impressed me. Um, uh, in terms of midfield, I thought, you know, Nicolo Barella had some very good chances, um, getting some very, you know, good um, long shots and overall uh, causing a lot of danger going forward. But the one player who actually impressed me the most, who, who won... Uh, man of the match was Hakal, Hakan Chalanoglu. Uh, Chalanoglu, you know, he's had a very interesting career coming in, uh, joining Milan from Bayer Leverkusen, uh, finishing second uh, to Inter, uh, joining joining Inter on a free transfer and then finishing second to Milan the following season. But uh, with that being said, has been very important for Inter this season has really been one of their bright lights and uh, has adapted to a, a deep-lying midfield role, um, has effectively sent Marcelo Brozovic, who's you know been so important for Inter's revival, has relegated him to a bench position and just been so important at the base of that midfield trio. I was very impressed with John Oglo and I, I felt that he was the best player on the pitch. Yeah. Let's uh, finish up by talking about the team in Italy that's overshadowing Indra and probably a lot of people's favourite second team to watch and that is Napoli. Uh, what a job Spalletti has done there. Uh, and of course they probably have the most wanted man in Europe up front in Victor Osman. Absolutely breathtaking. Uh, and his, his goals this season have been fantastic. Um Napoli are just amazing to watch. I was reading a, a thing that Guardiola was asking Spalletti about how to play three at the back. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, really, really good win for them against Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, overall, I think that this was a fairly composed performance from Napoli, um, getting in early, getting a, the opening goal 
And I think that Eintracht were incredibly unlucky to fall to 10 men. I don't think that Randolfo Moani should have been sent off for that challenge. Yellow card, fair enough. Big loss for them. I felt that was massive. And I think that the tie, without him, it's very hard to see them turning the tie around. Um, But yeah, Napoli getting a fantastic 2-0 win. It goes without saying, they have been one of the best teams in all of Europe this season. I put them alongside the likes of... Um, you know, Benfica, and I'm not sure who else, you know, maybe Arsenal, but they have been in a league of their own, and I think they are chasing something historic. You know, their first Scudetto in 30 years seems pretty much under wraps. It's really hard to see them blowing it. I mean, they've blown a lot of great leads in the past, but... (laughs) 15 points with, I believe, what, 13 matches left. Yeah. Very hard to see them losing at this point as well. They only lost once the Inter, didn't they? They only lost the one game, one hole the Inter, if I remember correctly. Right. And so, yeah, they lost to uh, they lost to Cremonese on penalty yeah, the, the in the Coppa, Coppa Italia. So they are alive in two competitions. I do think that as well, that 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 breathing space, you know, it's, it's something that is going to uh, help them a lot in terms of being able to rotate being able to, uh, you know, focus on both competitions and and overall, how how great does it feel to be winning pretty much every single game, to be marching towards your first title in 30 years, the thing that's really eluded you and your club, and, uh, you know, in the process of making history. I think that they've been such a phenomenal story, and really, they have had a tremendous rebuild. Uh, let's not forget... In the summer, Napoli lost so many key players, mm-hmm. such as Kalidou Koulibaly, uh, Lorenzo Insigne, Dries Mertens, um, so many massive players, and yet have been able to rebuild, uh, kept hold of arguably, arguably their most important player in Victor Osimen, um, brought in Kibisha Varashkelia. Varashkelia. What a phenomenal yeah. buy he has been. Unbelievable. Um, and, you know, to a point where I think it's a great lesson for teams that are, I think, on a similar level to Napoli, you know, the Monaco's of the world, the Eintracht Frankfurt's of the world. You don't necessarily need to hold on to your best players all the time. You know, sometimes I, I, it's better to do an open heart surgery, which is effectively what Napoli did. I think that there isn't a single Napoli fan who would have uh, rather held on to Kalidou uh, Koulibaly and and not gotten in a much younger uh, defender in Kim Min Jai. What a phenomenal uh, pickup he has been! Uh, has been an absolute rock in center de- in the center of defense. And so yeah, this is this is a yeah. phenomenal side. And that's the thing. Like I mean, Osman takes all the credit, but if you look at that midfield three of Zelensky, Lebaka, and Anguissa, I mean, the way Spalletti has those midfield three playing, plus like we said, uh, Varadskelia, um, Chucky Lozano. Lorenzo on the right, you know, the the, the Romani it, it with Manje. I mean, it's a brilliant team. Absolutely. I think that it's just so incredibly balanced, Phil. I think that, you know, you've got players such as Giovanni Di Lorenzo, somewhat of a late bloomer, but has really blossomed, blossomed into a phenomenal right back for Napoli, as well as their captain, uh, you've got Kim Min Jai and, you know, uh, Amir Rahmani, two fairly late bloomers. Uh, Kim Min Jai, up until, you know, two seasons ago, he was playing in Asia. And Rahmani, another who's kind of 
made his way from the lower rungs of Italian football. Um, you look at the other players there, Mario Rui, yeah, a player who has who has um, not always been a fan favorite in, in the Napoli fan base, but has been so important at left back and really experiencing kind of an Indian summer at 31, 32 years of age. That midfield as well, you know, once again, kind of like the defense, a lot of players who are really uh, kind of, shall we say, redeeming themselves, you know, uh, whether that's, um, you know, uh, and Andre Frank, Zambo, and Lisa, a player who was, you know, a Fulham, wasn't able to make the grade at Fulham and has really caught a new life in Napoli's midfield. Stanislav Lobotka, uh, I believe, what, 27 years of age, um, had some time at, at Celta de Vigo, but was fairly unknown when Napoli signed him and uh, has really been just such a phenomenal, smooth operator, the way he can just glide around the pitch and, and evade pressure. I think a lot of similarities to uh, Marco Verratti, but uh, he's had a phenomenal year there. And so many others that you can mention, Tangi and Dombele, I know he hasn't been uh, fully first choice, but he has been definitely important for their Scudetto charge. Uh, Irving Lozano um, and, of course, the two, the perhaps the two um, most dangerous uh, atta- attackers in terms of their partnership in Europe right now, Kuisha Guarashkelia and Victor Osimhen. They are so much fun to watch. We will see what happens in the second leg of that. I think uh, Napoli will be comfortable. Um, mate, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this as always. Thanks for uh, recording with me. Uh, thanks to all of you who downloaded the show and get in touch with us and let us know what you think. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Uh, Zachy, take it easy, brother.